before we begin today's show. When it comes to insurance, State Farm has all the makings of a top-tier player. First, they make it look easy. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, and even file a claim from the palm of your hand with the State Farm mobile app, which was just given the award for Best Insurance Mobile App in 2019. Like a great teammate, they know your tendencies. State Farm agents are local, so they'll help you choose coverage that fits your needs. State Farm is always there to coach you through it with the answers you need when you need them. When you want the real deal, go with State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And as you know, there's a lot going on right now in the world. And if you're like me, you might be doing a lot of online shopping. Some stuff is sold out. It's getting frustrating. But for those of you who need to buy a new phone or device online, I just saw that AT&T started doing two really helpful things. They're offering fast, free, no-contact delivery and curbside pickup so that online shopping is as simple and safe as possible. You know, I got to tell you something. All this usage I'm getting of my phone, I'm doing all this stuff over the last few weeks. My phone's wearing out. I may have to take them up on this. Uh, on top of that, they've got a flexible return policy so you can shop at ease. You can visit AT&T.com to learn how to shop online from the safety of your home 24-7. Subject to change, restrictions apply. Remember to tune in to The Last Dance, the long-awaited docu-series about Michael Jordan and the 1990 Chicago Bulls dynasty. If you missed last night's two episodes, well, hopefully you recorded them. Parts three and four will come out next Sunday evening. And remember, when you get done listening to this podcast, you can check out the wrap-up show hosted by Jalen and Jacoby immediately following the broadcast, which is presented by our friends at State Farm and AT&T. Jalen and Jacoby, the after show, is available wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Jonathan, are you in Dallas? No, I live in Brooklyn. I thought you lived in Texas. No, you're thinking about um, McMahon? <laughs> <laughs> Why did I think you lived in Dallas? Hello and welcome to the Hoop Collective podcast. We talk about the NBA. Today we have got a show that does not talk about Michael Jordan. We have plenty of that elsewhere, but uh, something happened uh, in the NBA at the end of last week that um, just was amazing. I thought it was fascinating, and I've got the experts on here to talk about it. Joining us from Brooklyn, New York, is Jonathan Gavoni, our draft and player evaluation expert. There may not be a... Uh, a guy in the world who knows more about international players uh, than Jonathan Gavoni. Hello. How are you, Jonathan? I'm doing great. How are you? Great. Thanks. And joining us from Florida is our front office insider, Bobby Marks. Hi, Bobby. Hey, Brian. How are you? Jonathan, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me, guys. So I was just fascinated by the reporting that you and Woj did at the end of the week on Jalen Green. Uh, for this deal that he constructed with the G League, which we're going to go over in a minute. But first off, Jonathan, I don't really know much about Jalen Green. Could you educate us on what type of player he is, what his background is like, and why people are excited about him? Well, he's a Zach Levine type athlete, and he has those type of scoring instincts, but he's a much better player at the same stage, at the same age than Levine was, so you could argue that his upside is higher. I don't like to, you know, if you are, an, an outcome of being Zach Levine is really, really good, so I think that's enough for me, but some people might be offended by that comparison. I wouldn't. I think Zach <laughs> Levine is phenomenal, you know, but that's kind of the world I live in. You know, it's a world right, of yeah. unrealistic expectations, as you know. Um, but freak athlete, 
improving jump shot as one, you know, really everywhere he's been, a three-time gold medalist, um, you know, already at the at the age of 18, which very few guys can can say, has really improved as a defender and as a playmaker. You know, his his ball handling, his his passing, his shot selection and decision making, those are the things that are still evolving like a lot of kids who are teenagers, but his upside is through the roof and he's a really hard worker and you know, he's I mean, he's, he's done everything you'd expect, and there, a lot of people have him as the number one player in the class. We have him number two behind Kate Cunningham. Um, just I think that says more about Kate Cunningham than it does about Jalen Green. But this is a very exciting class we have coming up, which is a, a big sigh of relief for us after this kind of underwhelming group that we were going through right now, and we might not never get rid of at this day, at this point. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, no, he's from Fresno, but I assume he's, you know, he's played all over. Where is, where did he just finish high school at? Uh, so he goes, he's just graduating from prolific prep in Napa. Um, that is, you know, it's a school that's only been around for a couple of years, but they've really established themselves as a national powerhouse. That's where Josh Jackson also finished off his high school career. And, um, it's run by a guy named Jeremy Rusati, who is a, you know, a pretty well-known trainer. He's worked with a lot of NBA, um, players and, um, very heavy on, on, on skill development, but also they play a national schedule. And so he, he wanted to be challenged. That's why he moved from Fresno to Napa. And, um, you know, he, we got to see him everywhere and uh, they played on the grind session, which is, uh, one of the better circuits for high school players. And, um, you know, also the USA basketball, we saw him at the Hoopal Classic. So he's, he's really made the rounds. Prolific prep in Napa, California. That sounds like a pretty good place to go to school. I don't know if it is, but it, it sounds, it's a good sales pitch on the name and the location. So, all right. So I want to just briefly go over the deal. And you talked about it on the Woj pod, um, but this is what blew me away. So please correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, because I'm, I've just really been learning about it, and I've had some conversations with some people just because I was blown away. He, he, in, in my view, he had four options for next year. He could have gone to college, which I believe he has said he would have chosen the University of Memphis. So pretty crushing for Memphis. They get James Wiseman for two games or whatever it was, three games, and then they, they would have potentially had the top uh, player, one of the top players in this draft. He doesn't go. He could have gone to Australia to play for the NBL where um, LaMelo Ball and RJ Hampton went uh, this last year. He could have gone to China, which also had interest in in his services at, I assume, a pretty good price. Um, Or he could have gone to the G League to this pathway program where initially their strategy was you play in the G League for a year – when you're 18 to your 18 to your 19 year, and you can, if you're so selected, you can get paid $125,000, which is a premium. One that would be the highest paid guy in the G League. Um, but he didn't get that deal. Instead, he negotiated a deal. And Bobby, I have to say, do you ever remember the NBA negotiating a contract with a player like this? Because they ended up having to negotiate hard. And he ended up getting an incredible deal, which I'm going to go over in a second. But this is so strange. His representation was negotiating essentially with Adam Silver. Well, you're right, and it's it's funny. And his and his representative is you know Aaron Goodwin, 
who has, um, you know, Aaron's got a, you know, he's got Damian Lillard, um, DeMar DeRozan. He, he also had, has, he also has Jalen Brown, which makes me wonder. Only for endorsements though. Okay. Jason Glushon has him for, um, for contract. And he had LeBron and, and Durant when they But came it makes out. me wonder if yeah. there's a guy named, or there's a kid named Jalen White out there that Aaron Goodwin is also on. He's got Jalen Green. He's got Jalen Brown. No? <laughs> not, not, not I, I don't know. Sorry. Sorry. But, Sorry. The, but the, here's the funny thing is, and I, and I talked to Aaron about, about this, um, the process. I wanted to get behind the scenes a little bit on the process. And my big question was like, is there a tier structure, right? Like, is it like if you are ranked in a top, three or top four is, is there a set number and you know as you guys know aaron aaron's a hard negotiator and, I, and he said no he goes the, the tier structure is if you have a good agent or not <laughs> I mean, <laughs> aaron is not was. afraid to uh you know self uh, however i want to put this to uh congratulate himself on good deals but he has negotiated lots of good deals over his career yeah, I mean, and he got another one here, and you can you can go, uh, go you, Brian, jump into that, or, or John, and jump into that contract because it's a it's a doozy, man. It's basically it's the base pays is basically he feels like a whole G League team. I mean, considering that G League players make thirty five thousand, they can make up to eighty five thousand based on if they're in the with that team for sixty days. I mean. It's a monster number that the league um, is invested in him, and in, and in, they'll continue to invest with that team. So here's, but, but Bobby, I think I think it's misleading to compare it to G League players because yeah. it's really outside of the G League structure. I would say it's more of like an NBA. It's the eighth NBA academy that's going to be based here in the U.S. It's a, it's a one and done factory, is what it is, and they're going to surround them with. NBA veterans, you know, guys who work towards the tail end of their career that will provide leadership and guidance and, and fill out the team because it's, they're not going to have 12 players. And so it's important to have, you know, role players as well and guys that could benefit from that spotlight. So, you know, I think that was one of the things that people didn't really understand when they said, well, he signed in the G League. He's not, he's going to be doing, he's going to play some games against G League competition, 10 to 12 games is what Sharif Abdul Rahim told me, but also go and play uh, international games, you know, um, tournaments, uh, play against the NBA academies. Uh, I mean, they're still trying to figure this out. Honestly, they don't know exactly who they're going to play against, how many games they're saying 20 to 25 in total. And so, you know, it'll be interesting how that plays out, but. Uh, I think that was one of the sticking points in the original announcement in October of 2018 was, you know, throwing a kid into a G League team. You know, he, he has no say with where he gets to go. Um, and, you know, what is the incentive structure for the coaching staff, for the NBA team that owns that team, um, you know, his teammates. And so I think that this is a way to alleviate a lot of those concerns. So, Jonathan, and, and how – how much did uh, do you know? How much Lamelo Ball and RJ uh, um, RJ Hampton? Do you know how much those guys got paid in Australia last year? They will end up netting around five hundred thousand dollars after they get um, the, the extent of it. Because same thing with Jalen Green, it's in it's incentivized. You know, he has to play a certain amount of games. He has to make a certain amount of appearances. He has to conduct, um, you know, their life skills uh, part of, of the program. So I think they looked at what happened in the NBL and they said, you know, LaMelo Ball, his last game was November 30th, just as 
you know, he had two triple doubles and then he had this mysterious foot injury, shut it down and didn't play another game the rest of the season. That was a big hit for the NBL. You know, How many games were, did he play total? Do you remember? 12. He played 12 regular season games. He got 500,000 for 12 games. He will but, end up getting 500. He hasn't gotten it yet, but yeah, that's what he's going to end up making from this. But he had to go to Australia to do it. Correct. Um, now, so this deal, they're creating uh, a t- they're, they're creating a team. I mean, yes, it is going to be like an academy, but at the same time, there's going to be 30-year-old men who are retired from the NBA who are going to be on this team. Uh, am I correct in saying that? Um, yeah. That's something that they're trying to figure out, too. Do you take players who are 27, 28, who are still in their prime that, you know, that washed out of the NBA and are trying to get back in? Or do you take guys like a Damian Wilkins, who is 36, 37, who is still a really good player, but not really an NBA prospect anymore? And maybe someone who wants to transition into a coaching staff in a front office because, you know, you're going to be around NBA executives every single day. And so if you, prove yourself in that setting, I think it's a natural transition to move into a coaching staff. So it'll be interesting to see how that part of it plays out too. Yeah. So um, here's why I think that this maneuver was so incredible because I don't know if his leverage was as extensive as he was able to get because number one, the Australian league is in danger. One of their owners, the owners of the Sydney Kings, gave an interview to the Sydney Morning, Morning Herald where he said if they have to play without fans next year, the, the league may fold. Now, that could be a Well, a they were in the middle of these you know, negotiations with their players association, and they asked them to take 50% pay cuts on the high end. And so, I mean, I think some of that was, you know – putting that out in the media saying, if you guys don't take these pay cuts, we might, the league might fold. You might have nowhere to play next year. So. Right. And, and Andrew Bogut is, is mulling retirement. He was hoping to play one more year to play in the Olympics, and he's mulling retirement because he doesn't know what the state of the league is going to be. So uh, that doesn't exactly sound like, like, oh, I'm going to sign up there. Things are going great. Right. Their borders are closed right now. They're, he has nowhere to go. I mean, Isaiah Todd, I think, if – he wanted to go to the NBL, but they said, we can't sign you right now because we don't know when our league is starting, what the immigration situation is going to look like. What is our cash flow going to look like? Our NBA scouts going to be able to fly in and out of Australia all season long. And so they basically told him, go to the G League. And that's why Isaiah Todd, the number 13 player in the ESPN 100, decided to join Jalen Green and sign there as opposed to going to Australia. And China, which was also an option for these guys, you have some of the same challenges, including the unknown situation with the virus there. And, you know, can you get into that country? And then his other option was to go to Memphis to, for, for no money, um, in theory. And, um, and, certainly, and certainly no, um, you know, shoe deal right away. So, you know, like, <laughs> he drove a hell of a deal, but I, I don't know. I don't know how strong his leverage actually was. And the NBA wants us so bad. So two years ago, I think I worked with you a little bit on this story. I went down the rabbit hole. The NBA really was kicked the tires on doing academies for high school kids. They have academies uh, in other parts of the world. Um, they have one in Africa that has sent some, some, a bunch of kids to college, if I'm not mistaken. 
Please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, they have three in China, and their goal in China is to find an NBA player. They have not done that yet. Um, I believe they have one in India. They have one in Mexico. And then they have one in Australia uh, near Melbourne where they send top players from all over the world. And they kicked around creating one in the United States because what Adam Silver wanted to do was, frankly, to undercut – uh, the college basketball system. He wanted to sort of get these kids as high school athletes, start training them to be professionals, and then enter them into the G League, uh, make the G League a real minor league system, and sort of subvert the colleges. But but I did some pretty deep in discussions with people at the NBA and other people that they consulted and people who work in the academies across the world on this. And at the end of the day, the league just did not want to get into the education business. They felt that, that there was way, you know, way it was fraught with way more difficulties than they were ready to go. So the, it, it evolved and it evolved to this. And I think it's a pretty good model. And the reason the NBA, I think paid so much money here, Bobby, you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, is that they needed to get a beachhead. They needed a player to have a wonderful opportunity, they needed a big name to do it so that they could potentially create a, a stream here, a stream of players into it. And yes, it's because they want to develop players better and prepare them for the NBA, but they also want to create something else that they can sell. And college basketball is a massive uh, monetary situation. It's a billion-dollar business. If the NBA can siphon off some of that and potentially create a team or teams that it can play games against and sell either in terms of games, people coming to watch them play, or a television package built around, this is what is the double whammy that the NBA is trying to do in my view. And they've, they've taken some time to get here, but this is an interesting place that they've reached. Well, and I think too, Brian, is that it's kind of like a, a two-part process, right? You 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 get the elite player, which is in this case, you know, Jalen Green and who else follows, and now you build out the infrastructure, right? So it's going to be critical for them to, you know, besides fielding, you know, NBA level veterans, as uh, Jonathan said, but the coaching staff, the, the right coach, um, the training staff, the support staff, because the one thing you don't want to do is make a, you know, a 500,000 plus commitment. And then all of a sudden this thing doesn't work out from, um, from a basketball standpoint on the, on, on the court or, or off the court. And you have other, you know, because let's face it, the next wave of high school players is going to call the, the Jalen greens of the world and, and ask, well, how was it? And, you know, basically kind of how it goes for him, I think, is going to, you know, certainly when you make that much money, yes, will dictate, I think, a lot of things here. I think, Jonathan, ideally, they'd love that guy to be a high draft pick. So they want him to set up to be successful. And if they're going to spend, think of how important he is now. You know, yes, it's a $500,000 salary for 20 or 25 games. They don't even know who they're going to be playing. But the investment is way deeper than that. The NBA is now heavily invested in Jalen Green's success so that they can get this this pipeline going. Am I wrong? No, absolutely not. I spoke with several other players who were considering this option who ultimately end up deciding to go to college. This came onto my radar 
three or four weeks ago. You know, the, the NBA was recruiting guys like Josh Christopher, who's, you know, a top 20 recruit, Zaire Williams, who's a top five recruit. And the pitch to them was, we cannot let this thing fail. We are going to do everything in our power to make sure that this works out for you because we need to show that we can help guys become high draft picks and get the next crop of guys next year. And so, you know, because there, there's so many question marks about what this is going to look like. You know, what is my schedule going to be? Where am I going to be? Who am I going to play against? Who are my teammates going to be? Who is the coach? I mean, these are all the question, the first questions that you ask and they don't have any answers to those right now. And so <laughs> that was, their, they said, just trust us. Okay. We're the NBA. We know how to get players to the NBA. We know how to develop NBA players. So just put this in our hands and everything's going to work out. We got you. So this is so fascinating because you've got the NBA standing shoulder to shoulder with Memphis and Kentucky and Michigan and Duke recruiting these guys. And they've got a giant pocketbook that they're doing. This is essentially what was allegedly frowned upon for decades, right? It's amazing. Like, like, like Adam Silver is basically – conducting a a a coup um and flaunting the fact that he can do it and look we could be having a podcast two years from now and say hey remember when they tried that well it was a failure and it failed for these 11 reasons and we should have known then and i and i don't know i don't know enough to know that it will but i think it's just an incredible act for the nba to be involved in right now you know, Jonathan, is this comparable to what happens with leagues overseas at all? I mean, I know they're, they get them even before high school, but like, what was their roadmap here? Most overseas teams have zero interest in 18, 19 year olds just because those guys can't help you win. And we saw that to an extent this year with LaMelo Ball and RJ Hampton and their record, their team's records when those guys were playing was very, very poor. And so, but the NBA doesn't care about that as opposed to teams in Spain or Italy. I mean, you remember when Brandon Jennings, I mean, he, he didn't make much of an impact in, in, in Italy for playing for Rome. Emmanuel Moutier, when he was in China, he, he didn't help them win very much. They kind of faked an injury for him, sort of. They shut him down for a while and then they had another injury. So they brought him back kind of a rushed way. And so, you know, but I, I just think. Huge hit for college basketball. Um, you know, this was such an underwhelming season on the college front. You know, you already lost LaMelo Ball, RJ Hampton, and James Wiseman after three games. And then, you know, Anthony Edwards, Cole Anthony, Jaden McDaniels. Now, these were your top 10 recruits. These guys had very underwhelming seasons on, you know, bad teams that weren't even NIT teams. And so to, for the NCAA to see this happen, I think it's I think it's concerning if you're a college basketball coach. I mean, those are the guys that I talk to, and they say, you know, what are we waiting for with this uh, name, image, and likeness stuff? Let's get this off the ground. Let's be competitive. Why are we giving away our best players? But can to they every be competitive league? if the NBA is going to spend this level? And okay, they're not going to give every recruit five hundred thousand. Maybe again, maybe you get less. I, I don't know if they can compete with that. Uh, at least, I at, think least above, that if, at least above the table. If Jalen Green could have gotten um, a sneaker deal 
and all the endorsement deals that come along with signing at Memphis or Auburn or Kentucky, I think he would have made enough money. I think he would have. But, but is that what's that on the table? Are they going to let them do a shoe deal? Yes. Yeah. Okay, you, I mean, the details are still being worked out, but theoretically, if you can market yourself and use your name, image, and likeness, you could get, you could go to car dealers, you could do baseball card signings, you could do a sneaker deal, you could do anything you want. You know, I mean, there's going to be boosters who say, you know, I have a doctor's office and I want to put you in a commercial and I'll pay you a hundred thousand dollars. You know, that this is what, and that's what the NCA is petrified of is that it's going to be a recruiting tool and you're going to see it, you know, all these mid majors, you're going to see Boise state, you know, and football and, you know, Creighton, you know, like going out and I mean, they have some crazy fans with, with deep pockets and that would change the college landscape. And I think that's what the NCAA is so scared of. They're going to eventually have to do it because, you know, California already passed this law in 2022 and other States are considering it. So it's going to happen at some point. But it's just it's not going to be on the NCAA's terms anymore. So, Bobby, even if the top five to seven players, let's say five of the top ten players, let's say three years from now, five of the top ten players out of high school by the various ranking services go to this pathway, this G League, whatever it is, you know, in between G League and NBA pathway. Um, college basketball is still going to be as popular as ever. It's the talent level is just going to be slightly reduced. We're still going to see great games between North Carolina and Duke. Um, Kentucky is still going to have great talent. Kansas is still going to have great talent. The NCAA tournament in and of itself will still be terrific. There will still be 14 seeds upsetting three seeds. But the top-end talent, like people are saying the death of college basketball, that's preposterous. There's still going to be college basketball. just be, you know, you, you just miss those bright stars. You you know, you may miss the Zion Williamson effect that we saw as an example. Yeah, I mean, it's not like the NBA is going to go out and create a, you know, a 10-team select, you know, uh, league where the best of the best high school players are going to go there and each team is going to have a $5 million budget. No, I mean, it's what I look at it right now, like the NBA is like, they're almost like they're venture capitalists, right? And they've got this seed money lying around um, of, you know, two to three million dollars, you know, per year or maybe even more that they're going to invest in this this company, which is this select team. And instead of making money off it, they're going to be able to produce draft picks. I mean, that's kind of that's how I look at it. And, yeah, I think college basketball will survive through this. Um, but I do think it's kind of a, you know, it's that first blow that um, that nobody has ever been really a threat to them. Now, when you take a top two prospect away from them, will it be a wake up call? I don't I don't know. I mean, I think Jonathan made a great point where he said, you know, hey, if Jalen Green was able to get a sneaker endorsement deal or make um, you know a marketing deal at Kentucky or Auburn or Memphis, then he maybe would have gone to one of those schools here. But I think the opportunity here, I mean, let's face it, Jalen Green's going to make probably close to what a minimum salary player. And that's probably $900,000 when it's all said and done. So to me, I'm just more focused on the media rights aspect of it. You saw how great the television ratings were for, for Duke when Zion was a rookie. I mean, obviously you care more when Duke is playing North Carolina, but ultimately it didn't really matter who Zion was playing. Think of the NBA being able to sell those rights. And I also think of LeBron James Jr., 
look at how many that team was all over television this year if you knew where to find it that team was selling out arenas all over the place what's lebron james jr going to do when he gets Bronny james when he gets to uh to be 18 years old you know what path is he going to take you know if they can if they can sell that that's a whole nother revenue stream that uh that they're looking for all right i want to pivot a little bit to this year's draft um First off, Bobby, uh, I, I know that uh, Jonathan and, and Woj have reported about the request to move the draft back. The NBA is pretty noncommittal on anything right now in terms of dates for anything, which I think is a good strategy, quite frankly. They don't want to be pinned down. They don't want to be accused of being optimistic or pessimistic or on this guy's side or that guy's side because returning to normalcy has become a political issue. Um, with the challenges that they have for this year's draft, what do you think is gonna it's gonna end up looking like? Um, if the, you know, with the understanding that there is going to have to be a draft at some time before next season, whenever that is. Yeah, I mean, I think it's if we're based on the calendar and where we are, and especially with the league not having you know a, a drop dead date or a decision. I mean, June twenty fifth is I would say unrealistic. The only way I, I could see it happening is if within the next couple of weeks the league decides that there's not going to be a season and, and it's going to be kind of business as usual, you know, with the draft at the end of June and free agency starts, you know, July 1. But um, I, I just have a hard time thinking, you know, I, I've started to prep prospects for the interview portion, which is really the only thing they can do. And, you know, I've done four already and, and the, the four guys I've talked to have done nothing, Right. I mean, they basically have maybe they've gone out for a run, but basketball stuff they're not able to do uh, because of what's going on. Um, I think that realistically, it would probably would make sense where we're looking almost like end of August. I know uh, Jonathan Woods in August, September that teams are are positioning for that certainly creates a burden for agents to kind of keep it from a training standpoint. But yeah, I just it's hard for me to believe that June twenty fifth is is realistic. Bobby, how many guys in your years at the Nets did you guys draft that you didn't sit down <laughs> with, spend time with, have your hands on, what have you? Well, Brian, we went through a stretch, and it wasn't a good stretch, <laughs> of two players, <laughs> two years. And I always say it's, it was probably the most critical time because what happened was it was towards the tail end when Jason Kidd was getting older and Richard Jefferson was getting older and Vince was getting older where – we needed that next wave of players to kind of come up the pipeline. And we drafted Marcus Williams, Josh Boone, Sean, uh, Antoine Wright, and Sean Williams in three consecutive years. And we did not bring them in for um, a workout. Um, we did not meet with them in New Jersey. I know Rod Thorne and Ed Stefanski met with, uh, with Sean and uh, I believe Antoine in a different location. But yeah, I mean those and those and you guys know how those four turned out. <laughs> I mean, so um, I think it's a pro. I, I think it's important to get that player kind of under. Um, you know, the war. I I'm not a big believer in the workout in general, three on three. What does it tell you? But I think getting them in your own facility, meeting with them face to face, getting them on the court with your coaches. I, I think there are some you know certainly benefits there. Jonathan, the draft isn't my life like it is uh, for you, um, but. I've talked to quite a few uh, executives who think that the the opportunity to meet with guys is the most important part of the process because you know they're 
their bodies of work largely are out there. You know, you've done your work. You've you've gone to see them play since they were, you know, in in, in high school. In, in some cases, um, the ability, the inability to meet with these guys, and, and the the league. I think you reported that they're they're saying that you can spend only four hours with them uh, over a video conference. I mean. I quite frankly can't imagine four hours on video conference. There's, I, I would be stunned if anybody does four straight hours on video conference. Um, I don't think that helps at all. Like, how much of an encumbrance do you think this is going to be if that's what it ends up being, where you can't have dinner with a guy and you know get a feel for him with your coaching staff, etc.? I think it's challenging. But like just like any other industry, you want to meet with a guy face-to-face. You want to ask him tough questions. And every organization has their own culture, their own philosophy about how to go about that interview process. Some teams like to sit them in front of the, um, their game film from this past season and pause it and say, you know, what was supposed to happen here? What did you mess up there? You know, they want to get a better feel for their basketball IQ and they um, – and they want to see their body language also when they ask them difficult questions. They try to trap them at times, you know, with things that they know and they lead them down a path to see, you know, are they going to be elusive, you know? And so I do think that there may, for like the top draft picks for Anthony Edwards, for example, if you want to get him on a plane, uh, a charter flight to, San Francisco to meet with him if you're the Golden State Warriors, that's still a possibility. You're not going to be able to bring 40, 50 guys in like you normally do. But I do think oh, are they that allowed we might to do that? Like right now, they're not allowed to, they wouldn't be allowed to do that right now. But I mean, once this moratorium ends and they have, there's going to be some kind of draft process. You know, we just don't know what that's going to look like. Um, you know, it's possible that once we get into June, July, you know, the people are more comfortable getting on flights and stuff like that. I don't think that they're going to have three on three workouts because like Bobby said, these guys are really out of shape at this point, you know, and, and I don't know how much you're going to learn and there's injury risk and all that. But I mean, the medical is that's, that's the big thing that they really need. And, and it's just very challenging. How do we go about getting them? Do we have guys go to their, like their local doctors or hospitals, some kind of private medical facility in the area to conduct a thorough physical, you know, because the, the medicals that they do, um, they're in Chicago um, and everything is like clockwork and NBA doctors from each team are allowed to actually attend. They can ask follow-up questions. Um, you know, if they see something, they can dig deeper into it. And, and that's huge. You know, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing that teams are worried about right now is the medical. Is it the can, can you can you tell me about that? Like, do you know what actually happens at the NBA physical in Chicago? I mean, they just it's a battery of tests, everything under the sun. It's um, stress tests, echo tests, MRIs, it's X-rays. They, they dig up your entire injury history beforehand and they and they look at everything you know like if you had if you tore your acl when you're 15 years old they know about that and they're going to do an mri on that knee and they're going to ask you really probing questions and all these doctors are going to be there and everybody's going to have their own opinion on everything and it's a really lengthy cumbersome experience for these guys and but it's it's just really really important to the nba teams to be able to project you know, what is the chance this guy is going to get hurt? You know, they grade them. Uh, there's like a one to five scale 
for, you know, how healthy or not healthy they are. And there are certain players that a lot of teams just say, we cannot consider drafting this player under any circumstance, you know, and, but there's, there's a lot of differing opinions on it too. You know, the medical field, it's not in it. It's not as, as much of an exact science as you would think it is. And so some teams say, well, I'm not as worried about this. And other teams say, I'm not going to draft him at all. So I mean, Bobby would know more about this since he went through this so well, many yeah, times. Yeah. But- I mean, it's, it's the process is long. And, and, and what happens guys is that when a player in the trend lately has been guys have not gotten the physical in Chicago, right? They basically have, pick the team they want to go to. And I think it was, you know, Jaron Jackson Jr. Um, a couple years ago. And, and finally, the night of the draft, the, the physical, I think, was given to, to Memphis. Um, you know, we went through experiences where, like, as I say, you know, um, the one year Oklahoma City put Reggie Jackson in the witness protection program, right? I mean, they basically hit him from yeah, they, all the they don't teams. They don't have to give their medicals, right? They, no, can, they can opt no. out of that physical. Right? No, so it makes you the challenge of do you want to draft a player without having um, – But that's probably – that's medical. mostly top 10 picks. Yeah, like, that's mostly and, top 10. Or a guy who gets a promise maybe in the, in the 20s and you don't see him forever. Um, and, and maybe that team just does a medical on him separately. Well, like I, the st- one of the stories that I know is that Joel Embiid went to Cleveland. Cleveland, I think, had the number – maybe they had the number four pick that year. Maybe they had the no- – They remember. had number one, no? They had number – what was that year? Is that the Bennett one. year, right? No, not that, not Embiid. No, that was no. Wiggins. Oh, Wiggins. Okay. Wiggins, That's Jabari right. Parker, That's Embiid. Right. You're right. Uh, the story that I heard was that you know Embiid was being very careful because he had had the back injury – he did come to Cleveland and did allow them to put him through a um, through a full physical, and they found a stress fracture that he didn't know about in his foot at that physical. And Cleveland had the information, and uh, Embiid, I don't think, shared the medicals with everybody. I don't know if Philly got it. I don't know if you remember that. But um, one of the things that – I mean, as soon as your story – posted Jonathan about how the league was going to impose some rules I had an agent call me relatively prominent agent screaming at me about not yet not yelling at me but just am really interested and really trying to enforce the danger that this could be when it comes to medicals because agents like to protect their players by protecting their medicals or only release medicals to certain teams because it's a way to guide players to certain teams. Oh, yeah, you want to know about that ACL from when he was 15? Tough luck. You have to, you have to draft him without. Oh, but my player wants to go over there? Yeah, you can look at this. He's, as you can see, he's fine. Um, and it's one of the information, you know, information things that people were, uh, were really tr- you know, hounding and, hound and trying to get is that, is that medical information if it's kept close to the vest. And the reason the agent was worried is because they're afraid with this draft, with – you know, they're not being a level playing field or you're not being able to, to, to maybe be able to physically examine these players that they'll require the players send their medical information, you know, get one great physical uh, and then send it to all 30 teams. And they don't they just don't want that. They've been fighting that for years. And, um, you know, the Major League Baseball had been trying to get some draft things done for a long time. And in the deal that they negotiated to get their their salary situation taken care of during the shutdown, they threw, they squeezed in some draft changes. And that's something that they're worried about is that this becomes uh, 
this this draft this draft because if it's outlier situation could set a precedent going forward. I don't know if that'll happen, but I know that there's people out there who are worried about that. Hey, before we go, um, this uh, conversation about the last dance is presented by AT and T. Um, we're actually uh, recording this in time. We're going to wrap this in a few minutes here, so we can all go watch it on Sunday night here. Um, so I just wanted to ask you guys uh, one fond thing that you guys remember about the Jordan Bulls, Bobby. You can start. Well, you know, it's we played them in the first year, uh, the first round in '98, in the, in the uh, first round, and we lost in Game One in overtime by three. I had never met Michael Jordan before, and um, my biggest takeaway was I was standing on the ramp outside the United Center with Michael Korn, who actually had gone to North Carolina and knew Michael Jordan. And uh, Michael came out in his car, went up the ramp, and Michael Korn yelled his name. Jordan put the car in reverse, rolled down the window, shook his hand out, and that was the first time I ever met Michael Jordan. (laughs) <laughs> that's how I. That's how my uh, initiation to the uh, to the ninety seven ninety eight. How that Bulls. series go for you guys? Well, we lost by three in overtime. Keith Van Horn had the flu, didn't play the second half. We lost by five in game two. This was best of five. Uh, game three, we play at home. We bring in Michael Buffer. We pay him probably about two hundred thousand dollars. Oh my god! Let's get ready to and, rumble and wind up losing by about thirty. Oh my god! <laughs> And were there more? Were there more Bulls fans or Nets fans at the Meadowlands? Oh man! I mean, that's at the old. That's at the Meadowlands in '98. Um, we had a, you know, it's Cal Perry's lone playoff appearance, and then he he wound up getting fired the next year. Uh, Jonathan, I mean, I was I was pretty young. I mean, I grew up on Michael Jordan. I remember being ten years old with with you know sitting with both of my brothers watching the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona. That's really kind of when I fell in love with basketball. I mean, I, I was a Miami Heat fan. They came into existence in 1989. I was seven years old. And just remember, you know, them just kicking the Heat's ass every single time, 30, 40 points. It was, that was, you know, that's how I grew up as a basketball fan. I, I just, I remember just being in awe of, of, of watching how great he was. And, you know, that's, that's, that's why I'm one of the big reasons why I'm doing what I am today, honestly, because of Michael Jordan. Well, I'm going to say right in advance that I'm going to be accused of being a stick in the mud here, but I just I can't help it. The introduction that the Bulls made, their intros, especially when they got to the United Center, where they used that music. I can't remember the name of the music. I think it's called is it called, is it called Sirius or um, whatever, you know, that iconic music. And people have been putting it on Twitter, getting ready for this. I would wish that the game ops folks in the NBA would go back and look at that intro. That intro is iconic. It raises goosebumps to this day. And they didn't need the scoreboard playing highlights and blasting music. They had that, you know, they had that music, but it was more of a tone setter as opposed to, you know, blasting it. And the focus was on the court. I know that this is crazy that, 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 that you would actually watch the court during warm-ups. But every NBA arena I go into now, and I realize that they all have these $30 million scoreboards or more, however it is. And it's you know the width of the court and everything like that. During introductions, you have 20,000 people staring at the scoreboard. And there's no atmosphere at all. The entire atmosphere is piped in. And nobody cares about it. And all the videos are exactly the same. If you look at what the Bulls did... That all dark, and I know that they had a little animation that they played with a bull running through the through the city, but 
when it came time to introduce the players, there was a spotlight on the court and the rest of the place was pitch black. And that is what my one of my fondest memories of is the Bulls. It was intimidating to watch in 1994 on television on when it was on NBC and it's, or whatever it was, 92, 97. It's intimidating to watch now. And you could learn by looking back at the simplicity and the greatness of the Bulls intros. And I hope that they have it. Um, in this doc uh, starting tonight. All right. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Bobby. Thanks, thank you, Brian. Andrew Hahn. Thank you to Troy Farkasin, Connecticut. Go watch The Last Dance. That's what we're going to do right now and enjoy it. Um, thank you for listening to the Hoop Collective. We'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.